today on EdgeFX. And so from this Indian explorer that I was really taken by to finding out that the career that I had picked was very much implicated with the dispossession of Native peoples and not knowing or even thinking about any of this until I was in that place. Uh, it just helped me recognize how colonized my education was. EdgeFX editor Carl Sack sits down with Laurent Savoy professor of geology and environmental studies at Mount Holyoke College to talk about her new book, Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape. So to start out, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background um, because you're a geologist by training. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that and then how you came to write a book like this, which I was interpreting more as, as a sort of a genealogy informed by landscape and a, a wonderful narrative where you search for your ancestors. So first, what, what led you to geology as a profession? Well, thank you very much for uh, asking me to be on, on this. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to, to say some words about how I came to Trace because it was a it was a long twisted journey and uh, and that includes my my coming to geology. Uh, I've always been interested in the stories that we tell of the land and the stories that we tell of ourselves in the land. And I learned at an early age that unlike people, the land itself doesn't hate that people do. And because of experiences that I had uh, as a child, very damaging ones, uh, I sought refuge uh, in nature, in the land. And I originally wanted to be a writer and an artist, but all around writing about Earth uh, and images about Earth, uh, photography, uh, painting, sculpture, using Earth materials. And then I switched more to history because I wanted to know more about uh, how people lived on the land. But where I went to college, I wasn't really uh, encouraged in those endeavors. And I finally picked geology because I wanted to study the science that understands not only how the land came to be, but what earth materials are, structure, and its history through time. And so that's really how I came to it. But if I could add one other thing, um, I know you, you may be too young um, unless you like to watch old movies. This came out long before I was born, but I, I love watching old movies uh, on television. There's a, a movie called The Long, Long Trailer uh, that stars Lucille Ball and her husband, Desi Arnaz. And it came out in the mid-1950s, and I, I guess I saw it when I was about 10. So this is, this is you know, 20 years later, but uh, it's a story of two newlyweds, and she convinces him that they should take their honeymoon in a long trailer, and they buy a trailer, and every place they go, from national parks to uh, to just beautiful places in the country, she picks up a rock. And she doesn't pick up a fist-sized rock, she picks up a boulder. And so the trailer gets full of boulders, and then they have to climb this steep, steep, steep pass. And uh, he tells her that they have to get rid of the boulders, but Lucy being Lucy, um, doesn't. She hides them. And I won't tell you what happens because it's a hilarious movie that uh, follows 
very much in the vein of their TV show, I Love Lucy. But because of those rocks in Lucy's trailer, that also helped me pick geology. That's a great story. So how did you get from geology to um, writing writing this book? And maybe it was, I mean, it sounds like you were initially interested in art and, and history and narrative, and so maybe it was sort of a returning to that. But if you could talk about how you transitioned from the science side of things, where did this book come from? I, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head in that it is returning to what my original interests and I don't mean uh, intellectual interest so so much as heart interest, what really was inside me and what had to come out. And it's what I always wanted to do, uh, that it's come out so many years after I began to really look at this is, for me, a little bit sad, but maybe uh, these life experiences were needed in order to come back to it. Uh, but really, I would say it's because I always define geology as un not only understanding Earth, but understanding our place on Earth. And for me, it's, it's a sense of place writ large, not only a sense of where you are, but a sense of where you are through time. And because I grew up in a family, um, an African-American family of mixed heritage, that for whatever reason did not speak of its past, I grew up not knowing who I was or where I was. And this book was my coming back to that journey, that literal journey of trying to place myself in time and space. So place, I mean, as you said, plays a major role in this story and, and in searching for who, who you are and, and searching for your past. Um, can you talk a little more about how a sense of place informs your work and, and what places you feel most affinity for? That's a great question. Um, I think building a little bit on what I just said, uh, I have long felt displaced, unplaced, untethered, homeless. And it's, uh, it's really a feeling of not having a sense of who I am as a citizen of this country or as an inhabitant of this world. And for that to continue meant that I really had no sense of direction, literally. So for me, place is a way of coming back home and that is situating myself and placing myself in the context of not only family, in the context of not only geography, that is specific places in this country or on the continent, but also in the context of this country's history. And for me, sense of place involves coming back to all of those. And there are very particular places uh, in this land that have touched me for, for many different reasons. I was born in California, uh, always considered that home, even though we left there when I was seven years old. But left there after those early years when a, a child's sense of taking in the world about her had been set, uh, the impressions and the light uh, of California, the texture of the land, that became the home textures. That's how I measured myself in the world. And so that's why I've always considered California home. But that California doesn't exist anymore. It's 
it's decades past, uh, and the people who are part of that sense of place are gone too. But also Washington, D.C., which is where we moved to after, after we left California, which was my father's familial home for what I've learned now are at least eight generations. Not just D.C., because D.C. itself didn't exist prior to 1800, but that Chesapeake landscape. Mm-hmm. And so coming home for me and that sense of place means finding out ancestrally how I've been linked to these places. California for a shorter time, but D.C. over generations. And then I've lived in different places across the country, from West Coast to East Coast, and points in between. And they've all been important to me, because it's the texture of the land that really helps me get a sense of where I am. And and so following on sort of your journey through time, and from childhood to, to adulthood, and then wondering at your, your own history. I, you describe some childhood experiences in the, the book that are are incredibly painful. I mean, the, the experience of being cheated out of, you know, your postcard money because you're, you know, a little girl of color and uh, being done out of jobs because that you were looking forward to because of that. And you also talk about about the history of slavery in many of the places you visit, from South Carolina to Oklahoma to Arizona, and how painful it also is for for those histories to kind of be glossed over. Do you see those two things as related, sort of your personal experiences with racism and then the broader history of of not wanting to confront racism in society? How do those those interplay for you? Part of what I said earlier about placing myself in time and space also means understanding how this country's still unfolding history has marked me um, as a person, but not only me, has marked society and has marked the land itself. And understanding my situation in this country, for me, requires understanding all of that. And slavery is a big part of it. Um, my visit to that South Carolina plantation called Walnut Grove, and if I could just describe it really briefly, uh, uh, it's uh, a site that's on the National Historic Register. Um, It's a plantation that was established in the uh, 1700s, 1760s, by a family, and it later grew to become a very large cotton plantation um, through the 1800s, through the Civil War. But the the tour there um, doesn't speak of any of that. The tour speaks of the Revolutionary War, the heroes there. It speaks of the objects in the house, a very well-kept house. But it never spoke of those who worked the land to make that house uh, prosper or to make the people who owned it prosper. And after taking the tour, my friend and I walked along the path into the woods to go to the cemetery. Um, And we saw these beautifully cut marble uh, headstones and footstones for the family members there, dating from the late 1700s into the 1800s. And uh, I always like to look at the, the inscriptions on tombstones, the names, the dates, and to imagine what those people's lives were in between the time of birth and the time of death. 
But after leaving, we walked back through the woods and then we noticed that there were these fist-sized stones out one by one into poison ivy, vinca, into the, the underbrush, and ultimately could count more than a hundred of them. And those were the markers of graves of the people who did work the land, yet had no voice at all in the public story. So for me, recognizing this unvoiced past, finding voice, giving voice to it, uh, is a way of recognizing how the legacy of that past lives on today. Because silences, which may have existed then, are perpetuated even today. And because of silences, that contributed to my sense of not knowing who I was and where I was. It wasn't just familial silences that impacted me, but those of popular culture, media, what I learned in school. And so slavery, even though I have no family members buried in that plantation or in those graves, I do have family members buried elsewhere who are lost, lost in time, whom I will never know about. As well, family members who were those who owned the land, who owned the people. And trying to reconcile this uh, is very much important to me. Did that kind of answer it? That was great. Thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> okay, that was one step. One step. Okay. You have a great description of Erwin Royce's uh, North American landforms map in the book. And I'm a cartographer, so I love maps. Um, Do I, you pronounce his name correctly? You know, most I'm people are cartographer. <laughs> we, we, that's a, it's, it's introduction to cartography. We have to, wow, there it is. Gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, this is beautiful. I mean, what I'm looking at is the map of landforms in the United States produced by Erwin Royce in the 50s that um, maybe was it earlier, the first edition, mm -hmm. even than that, um, but beautifully hand-drawn. And Royce was a pioneer of different shading techniques for different landform types. Um, so, you know, cross-hatching and, and, or you know, just... Uh, sort of tick mark hatching for 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 hillsides and um, the use of sort of creative ways to to have a shadow effect in mountains and stuff like that. So, um, but this map also has has a lot of place names on it, and you talk about the importance of place names uh, on maps as well. So I wonder if you could explore a little more. What roles do maps play in shaping how you see the landscape? I have a troubled relationship with maps. Um, when I consider some historical maps, um, some maps, let's say, from early European explorers of the land, um, of the American land, this continent, uh, I can see how both naming and mapping were tools of claiming and possessing, and that in order to do so, so much of not only indigenous people's knowledge uh, was appropriated, but also how the land itself was taken. And almost a sense of, a, of literally a European washing or a white washing over what existed. So maps as a tool of power, possession, claiming, that, that is a difficult aspect that I do address in the book. 
And at the same time, this map in particular, Erwin Royce's map, is a map of texture and beauty for me. I was given this copy that you uh, are looking at in my uh, senior class in geomorphology at Princeton University by uh, Professor Sheldon Judson, an extraordinary geomorphologist. And I've taken this map on every single journey I've taken across country. Um, not, not just across the whole country, but let's say going from New York to DC, anywhere, flying, train, car, buses, uh, because I like to read the land. And his drawings, his texture, his, his hatcher, his shadows, the lines here, are lines of land, of landforms, of elevation, of plains, of broad rivers coalescing, of, of just the life of the American continent. And this map is a gift. And I would recommend to anyone who likes to fly across the country and look out the window, bring a copy of this map with you. Even in the mid-continent, you can find exactly where you are by reading Erwin Royce's yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Do you know the app Flyover Country? Have you heard of the... No. There is a... There is a With his map? Not this map, unfortunately, although I think they should add it. But there's there's an app that's being under development. You know, it has... Uh, you, you tell it your air, airline route, um, and it buffers 200 miles out from that and creates and puts a geology map on it and then all these points of interest that link to Wikipedia articles or or text or pictures and different stuff. It's a really cool thing. I was thinking, looking Can, at it at breakfast. I think it, it sounds really great. And then there's that piece of me that really, I mean, like, like people who rely on Siri or, or GPS to get from one place to another, I think it's important to try to figure it out yourself. And this allows you to do it. Uh, because I don't want to rely on someone telling me where I am. I want to figure it out myself. So in terms of places, I wanted to ask about a few of the places you've been. We talked. You talked a little bit about Walnut Grove. You talked about California and D.C. And as we were talking about at the beginning, like Madeline Island is a place that is you know, important to, to both of us, and I think for similar and different reasons. But can you talk a little bit about your time on Madeline Island? That was an interesting part of the book to me because it's not didn't seem directly connected to your personal history, you know, genealogy, but yet became an important part of the story for you. Why did you go to Madeline Island, and what did you find there? I went there to open my father's box, um, a box that I had found um, in recent years. My, my father died when I was 16 years old, and he was, uh, at that point... Uh, a man with whom uh, we had a strained relationship, as a teenager might with a parent. Uh, but I found a box that had materials in it, including novel manuscripts and so much more, that offered uh, the life of a person whom I never really knew, because when I came along, he wasn't a writer. Uh, so I needed to be in a place that was removed from all distractions and a, a friend gave me the chance to use her cottage on the North Shore of Madeline Island 
And so I went there to open the box. And I went there thinking because I had never been to northern Wisconsin, I'd never been to the Apostle Islands, that that nothing about that place connected to me. It was, well, I'm going to be a visitor to a, a new, a new uh, setting. But in my time there, I, I came to realize that that land and the history of that land touched me from my childhood on up, and I actually believe that it may be impossible to be a stranger to any place, even though you may not set foot there. And what I mean, and I, I learned from Gerald Visner, um, uh, Anishinaabe elder, writer, scholar, thinker of the highest order about survivance and about the traditions of his people on that island, which had a different name by, called a very different name by the Anishinaabe. And I also learned that Henry Rose Schoolcraft uh, came there um, as part of both expeditions searching for the lay of the land as far as the native peoples, but also the lay of the land as far as the possibility of mineral resources. And also while there, he married uh, a, uh, the daughter of a, a trader and a Anishinaabe woman, and he then extracted or appropriated many indigenous stories uh, that he then presented as being authentic Indian stories, uh, taking them out of context, taking them and reproducing them in static form and claiming it was an authentic American literature. And Schoolcraft uh, was someone whom I idolized in fifth grade, whom I thought was a hero. This intrepid explorer, he, he found the source of the Mississippi River. He was an Indian scholar. He was the first real ethnologist in this country, or ethnographer. And then to realize that this hero that was presented to me in that form as a child actually had a much darker side. And then finding from that that the treaty dispossession of the Anishinaabe, largely driven by the search for minerals, was implicated um, or tied to the development of geology as a field because the search for iron and other materials funded or fueled geologic exploration. And so from this Indian explorer that I was really taken by, to finding out that the career that I had picked was very much implicated with the dispossession of native peoples and not knowing or even thinking about any of this until I was in that place. Uh, it just helped me recognize how colonized my education was. And just to insert a middle point, beginning with uh, second grade uh, and the Song of Hiawatha, uh, written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and learning that poem and thinking it was an authentic, quote-unquote, Indian narrative, and even memorizing it, by the shores of Gitche Gumi, by the shining Bixie waters, stood the wigwam of Nokomis, daughter of the moon Nokomis, and we had a school production, and I had a big part in it. And I thought, by learning that, I was learning an authentic narrative. And recognizing that that really was an appropriation already from Henry Rose Schoolcraft's appropriation of Anishinaabe um, tradition, oral tradition, that was taken not only out of context, but then 
fixed as static narratives that then were sold as authentic American literature, just realizing the, the steps of appropriation that fed my interests in, in school. And so recognizing that my interests in indigenous tradition, in literature, in history, and then even picking geology as a field, all of those were implicated in what happened at Madeline Island. And so that land touched me even though I didn't realize it until I was there. Can I just say the name, the, the Anishinaabe name for Madeline Island, just because I, I love pronouncing it? Moningwanakoning. Yes. You can say it. Say it again. Moningwanakoning. Yes. Thank you. So I wasn't going to try to say it because <laughs> I didn't want to say it wrong. I've heard it through have you ever been to the northern great lakes visitor center yeah i have they have an they have a an exhibit that um you know tells the story it's kind of in the center of their museum room and and they pronounce it and i've heard uh elders from bad river and red cliff also pronounce it so, so that's it i mean I heard it, this. I heard it at a visitor center and i've heard people say it but i haven't heard it from native elders yeah and so i wouldn't want to try to say it without knowing I might be a little too deep on the O's. Might be Moningwanakoning, but it's 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 something very similar right. to that from my okay. memory. Yeah. yeah. You ask at the beginning of the book, from what do we take our origin? And it seems the rest of the book really seeks to answer that question. So, did you come to any satisfactory answers in writing it? I came to a beginning. A beginning of understanding, uh, a beginning of understanding why silence existed in my family, uh, a, bene- a beginning to understanding my position, that is, uh, in time and space. I think, if anything, it, it has opened up more questions. And what I what I've tried to offer in trace are some examples of how this the unvoiced past continues in the present and how that unvoiced past has touched me and the land and land that is places on the continent that that I've either visited or that I know. But what it's also pushed me to do, and I do mean push, I, I'm I I have no choice. Uh, is to dive in more deeply um, on one particular topic, and that is to search really for familial origins in a place where I now realize uh, there's a history extending back at least to the early 1700s, and that's in the Chesapeake landscape. So it, it's exp- not, not so much expanding the last chapter in the book, but entering it as in excavating strata deeply, bit by bit, to really come to a sense of origins. And this would be understanding my father's people, uh, a family of mixed heritage, African, of course, but also indigenous and also um, primarily English as well as Irish. And a history of these peoples coming together from colonial era to later in the Chesapeake area and what their coming together meant as far as their literally becoming a family, but also their lives on the land and uh, 
how that landscape changed. So I guess it, another way to put it is it's a, it's a parallel story about the changing landscape there over time, and that is the history of the land, um, human history as well as before, but also seeing through the eyes of a family, uh, African-American family of mixed heritage, and what that history and what that land meant to them. That's, that's what Trace is leading me to. And I think, as I said before, it, it's an opening, it's a beginning, and I think it'll lead to many other things. For example, the next book project, um, and I, I have to mention this, and I, I hinted at it earlier. Um, I, I noted before that I found my father's box um, and found the novel manuscripts and, and these pieces uh, or artifacts or relics of a, a person's life that I had no access to when he was alive. And part of what's in the box in, includes a manuscript that was published by uh, a big New York press, uh, E.P. Dutton, uh, called Alien Land, and it's about a, uh, using the language of the day, a mulatto boy becoming a man who tries to make his way in the world and escape prejudice and tries to decide whether or not he's going to pass, because he easily could uh, with his blue eyes his blonde hair, or not not blonde, but golden. Um, he didn't, uh, but he could have. And it was published to some fanfare, and Dutton put him under contract uh, for two other books. And I know this because the correspondence with the publisher was part of what's the contents of the box. Uh, but Dutton canceled the contract uh, because the would-be second novel concerned a quote-unquote Negro artist trying to fight against segregation in the nation's capital and considering the possible benefits of communism. And uh, my father found himself blacklisted. I don't know if at that time he knew what was happening, but when I came along many years later, he was an angry, bitter man who did not write and often did not speak. And for me, silence was very easy to learn. Uh, and I think my coming to Trace is finally realizing that I can speak. And it's about time that I did. So this next project uh, is a conversation, a dialogue with my father using those writings and also using the material I found in his FBI file, which is it's substantial. Uh, I think many people who had no idea they were under surveillance actually were. So Trace is an opening to many things and I think it'll open to more paths down the road including uh, more stories about the land and how the texture of the land itself came to be because I can't leave out the geology. Wow, wonderful. That I can't wait. <laughs> no, neither can I. I. I really enjoy talking to you. So yeah. um, let me ask. Let me end on this though. This is a question that I asked um, my students on their recent exam for two extra credit points that they couldn't get wrong. Oh, um, okay. That they you can't get this wrong either. What's your favorite national park and why? Actually, I can get that wrong because I don't have a single one. Uh, I think in this case, for me, it's not just the landscape, the park, the place uh, where it is, but it's also the experience there. Uh, so 
I want to say this is not my favorite national park. Uh, there are many, uh, and I could throw out a huge list. But the morning at dawn on the north rim of the Grand Canyon at a place called Point Sublime was the moment I realized the immensity of, of the physical earth and the possibility for beauty that I could be a part of. And that was at the age of seven. And so that morning at that place stays with me as one of the most formative experiences of my life. So a simple answer would be, oh yes, Point Sublime, North Room of the Grand Canyon. But I've had extraordinary experiences at other places as well, including Death Valley, or I could go on. And so I don't want to give primacy to just one or two places. Um, I love many, many of the units in the park system because not only of the landscape, but also of the history that many of them tell, like Sand Creek, the massacre site that finally is now part of the park system. And the, uh, the Park Service is working in collaboration with Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples to tell a more complex story about that moment in 1864. So I think I could fail to that. <laughs> no, I think that was a great answer. Okay. Full points. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. I've very much enjoyed talking to you, and I'm greatly looking forward to your next project coming out. Oh, thank you very much. I truly have enjoyed talking with you, and I uh, think we have a lot to share in our work. And I'd like to put it on the record. I'd like to know more about your work, and uh, I hope we, that we could stay in contact. And I really do mean it. That was Carl Sack speaking with Laurette Savoy. Professor of Environmental Studies and Geology at Mount Holyoke College, and author of Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape, just released in paperback from Counterpoint Press. Learn more about Professor Savoy's work at lauretsavoy.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-T-S-A-V-O-Y. And follow her on Twitter at lauretsavoy. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of Che, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by me, Brian Hamilton, with special thanks to Steve Pomplin and Emily Reynolds. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. Look for new episodes next month, and in the meantime, keep up with the steady flow of great content about environmental and cultural change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net The Edge Effects podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe now and if you like the show, please leave us a rating and review to help others discover it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>